This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to another episode of Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain on Revolution Radio. Making smarter financial decisions with your host, Rob Delson, former Fox News host and anchor at Roundtable Media with his team of market masters, Mark Lepresti, Managing Director of Mineta Advisory Partners, co-founder of Battlefin, leading data platform, and a former institutional equities trader at Lehman Brothers. Alex Mascioli, founder of Trade the Chain, former head of institutional prime brokerage at Bquant. John Nigerian, co-founder of Market Rebellion, former co-host of Halftime Report on CNBC, and co-founder of Option Monster and Trade Monster. Daily data insights and ticker updates direct from three of the world's top TradFi legal and crypto experts on Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain every Monday and Friday on all your favorite platforms. Let's get started. So we got a big show today, as always. We got we got Wednesday, we got the Fed doing its hike, not hike. We'll talk about that. We've got some interesting news on the AI chip market, Bed Bath & Beyond, some great crypto stuff to take on, and of course, our, our overview of what happened this week in the markets and what we're looking for next week, as well as our you know, our few fantastic futures with John. Hey, Mark, John, and Nick, good to have you guys. Mark, we've got a great new sponsor today, The Money Show. Tell us about them. We do, Rob, and thank you very much. And a big hello and a hearty shout out to the B3 Nation. Thank you so much for joining us, as you always. They were responsible for the debt ceiling. They were responsible uh, for the fentanyl crisis, and they were responsible for the echo, at least according to Gary Gensler. But uh, no, listen, uh, you are very right to point out we have a proud new sponsor today, The Money Show. The Money Show is not new to me or John, to the Market Masters. We have been happy to uh, serve as keynote speakers and panelists at the live events that they do uh, all over the country throughout the year. They've been around for a long, long time. Another enterprise similar to the ethos of B3 that's dedicated to empowering, improving, educating individual investors to enable them to make smarter financial decisions. And they've got a special uh, free webinar coming up. It's a mid-year portfolio review. It's got some absolutely unbelievable speakers, folks like Louis Navalier, Robert Helms, Katie Stockton, names that will be familiar to the independent traders that join us on B3. It's coming up soon. It's June 27th to 29th of 2003, of course. And um, I believe that our folks on the production team are going to pin a link not only to the uh, page that gives you a description of this webinar, but also the ability to register. It is completely free. We encourage you to join it. Check it out. Um, the uh, website uh, for The Money Show generally is www.themoneyshow.com. But again, we're going to be pinning the tweet for The Money Show Virtual Expo Mid-Year Portfolio Review. 
June 27 to 29, and I see it there at the top in the crow's nest. Well done, production team. So, Mark, while you're on a roll, let's just talk about the equity markets, the TradFi overview. You know, we've got some CPI news. Um, it's, it's, you know, tomorrow's a big day. We're all, we're going to talk about that a little later, but maybe we are also crawling out of a bull market finally. So, I mean, out of a bear market into a bull market. So what's your take on what's going on? You know, the latest news. Yeah. Well, listen, the, the, the bulls have been, uh, in, in charge uh, for, for a little while now. Um, and, and today in particular stocks, uh, the S and P and the NASDAQ both hitting a fresh 13 month high on each of those indices highest levels they've been in more than a year. That, of course, on the back of the CPI numbers that came in today, showing essentially that inflation was slowing, was cooling in May at the rate that the street was looking for. That led, of course, to the Dow Jones trading 145 spot, 79 points higher, just shy of 50 basis points to close at 34 to 12. S&P adding just shy of 70 basis points to 43.69, and the NASDAQ advancing the most, spot 83 uh, basis points to 13,573, spot 32. Um, so yeah, that that of course, the main part of the news being that uh, CPI consumer price index print that we got this morning showing that the index increased at just 4%, and it's funny because you know that sounds great. Um, in this uh, inflation JPOW vacuum that we're in. But absent that, you might say, well, well, damn, 4% year-over-year inflation on the CPI is not that great. Well, in this environment, it's actually good because it shows that inflation is, show is slowing. That, of course, giving traders reason to believe what I've been saying for a while, which is that JPOW is going to pause tomorrow, adopt the pause, hopefully adopt the pause in as dovish a way possible, although I think it's going to be somewhat hawkish pause, the market pricing in an almost 100% guarantee of no hike tomorrow. The question, of course, on everyone's mind is, what's the commentary going to be? Will he leave the door open for further rate hikes after this precious summer pause tomorrow? And we're going to tell you the answer later as we get into some more of the TradFi topics, but that's the uh, TradFi equity overview. I know my Armenian brother from another mother, John's got some more to share. We will. And John, before you start, I just want to say, Alex, you noticed, guys, that, Al that I mean, Mark, that Alex is noticeably absent from today's yes. show. The yes. day in which after his, his commitment to there will be a hike tomorrow, he's <laughs> gone for the final conversation on that. Mm -hmm. Just saying. Just saying. Very suspicious. I, I think he may have also been. I think he may have also been the one holding that shaky cell phone video in that person's backyard in Nevada with the aliens. I, I don't want to get too conspiracy theory here, but something's fishy. It's suspicious activity for sure. John Nigerian, what's the fantastic future update look like? Well, Rob, um, we've had some wild swings in energy this year. Not as much as we've experienced in two years ago fashion when we had that surge over 125 a barrel for crude and the moonshot in that gas. But we're seeing uh, some pretty strong comebacks right at support for natural gas. So that was our fantastic future today, nat gas. Um, but crude oil also made, uh, right now it's up about 3%. 
um, and dancing back and forth across the 70. This is WTI, West Texas Intermediate. Uh, so very interesting markets in energy, and they're just one of many interesting futures markets out there. And um, what are you seeing with things? I mean, we're going to talk a little, you know, about the chip competition, but um, what's going on with Oracle? We talked about Oracle the other day. Obviously, you know, that's tied into the AI situation and demand, but but they're, they're getting upgraded. Goldman Sachs is upgrading them from neutral to sell. What's your take on Oracle? Uh, well, sort of the other way around, from sell to neutral. <laughs> Sorry, sell to neutral. My bad. But still not much of a, of a, of a ringing endorsement, Rob. Uh, because this is one that, you know, it's just a head scratcher and Goldman's been short this thing all the way up. I mean, they're guys and gals that look and break down the numbers here. Beginning of the year, it was 84. Today, on the high, it hit a new all-time high for Oracle of almost 124, just a penny shot, 123.99. So they mentioned... Goldman did about the possibility that AI will be a significant driver, which you just said, and I agree, that's a distinct possibility. Obviously, Palantir, IBM, Microsoft, you know, uh, Google, they're all in that camp where they're going to get AI hyped, and they're probably going to follow through an awful lot with where they end up going um, over the next uh, several years, not just several months. Uh, but right now, Rob, that's the Oracle story. Knock on wood, we had unusual activity in it. We've got uh, a BOGO going out tomorrow. A buy one, get one free if they go to marketrebellion.com forward slash bang. They can get two months for the price of one. That's marketrebellion.com forward slash bang. Uh, because this is one of the many stocks that when we've cited it, it's had just a moonshot. It was a 400% return on the 114 calls that people were buying uh, that have a 30th of June expiration. So they've still even got time. But as you know, Rob, I'm, I'm one of those guys that always says, don't be a pig. You know, take your profits and run. And that's just what we did for the most part in Oracle. Netflix, I think that one was also pretty interesting because, uh, you know, according to some data, uh, Mark and I are data freaks, and uh, a, a firm called Athena is saying that they're getting 70,000 new signups a day ever since they announced that they're cutting back on people's ability to share uh, their passwords uh, more than to the immediate family and more than basically outside of your home. I mean, it's going to be very difficult for people that you know have kids scattered around the country to try to justify how they uh, are actually at the home in uh, Chicago. Maybe a VPN will solve that, Ron, Rob. I'm not sure. But uh, that, that was one of the interesting things. And that one also hit a new 52-week high today and with a lot of unusual activity. Let me ask you, John, about that. We talked about the, 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 the streamers. My instinct, you know, whatever, for what that's worth, was that forcing people to not share would hurt them. You know, this is saying, look, they're actually getting new subs. Do you think it's a short-term phenomenon or do you think, that, you know, this is like people are willing, look, you've got a family, you're going to have to buy five subscriptions instead of one. Do you think people are going to do it? Or is this model of putting, you know, an ad up front and you watch for free likely to win out in your view in the long term? 
I think that model will end up with uh, an awful lot of adopters uh, because, quite frankly, if it's truly your kids, um, you you probably uh, are looking at an audience that doesn't have quite the disposable income. Not that you know a Netflix subscription is as much as they probably spend on insomnia cookies or any of these other things, Rob. Um, but and that's a monthly versus just a one-time purchase of those cookies. Um, but I, I think overall, uh, we will see people probably for at least several months, especially after the summer, I would not so much caution, I'd kind of put a date in the calendar that some people will be able to give up Netflix over the summer because you know they've got other things going on and they're traveling and all the rest. But when they settle back in, I think you'll see another surge in the fall, but obviously it will taper off from 70,000 a day in the not too distant future. It's going to be fascinating guys to watch the post pandemic, how the, how this, the streamers handle it. I mean, during the pandemic, everybody just, you know, streamed, streamed and streamed. We'll see what happens. Um, great, great insights, John. Um, we don't have Alice with us. We have Nick Mancini, the director of research at trade the chain, Nick, Good to have you here. What's the uh, big picture crypto overview as we as we you know enter the middle of our week? Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Happy to fill in uh, for Market Master Alex. Uh, the big update for the big overview, I should say, for the crypto market is currently sitting at 1.05 trillion total market cap, up 0.10% in the last 24 hours. So no material difference in the market, um, you know, compared to where we were at over the weekend, unfortunately. Um, trading volumes are at 33.86 billion, which are up a couple percentage points uh, from their rolling 30-day average. And that's likely explained by the uh, recent volatility in the crypto markets, people definitely jumping in and trying to make bets on either a Bitcoin recovery or further decline. Uh, Bitcoin daily sentiment sitting around 39 out of 100, so bearish. But Ethereum, oddly enough, is sitting in the high 50s out of 100, so it's neutral. Uh, we do have over, we do have an 11% increase in terms of tweet volume, indicating that, you know, definitely agreeing with trading volumes that there's an in increased interest interest in trading cryptocurrencies around this volatility. And uh, most notably, Ethereum has the biggest spike in trading volume at 6.25 billion over the 30-day average. That's up 8% compared to 30-day averages. So uh, Bitcoin sitting right around 25.9K as we speak, and Ethereum sitting at 1738 as we speak, and Bitcoin notably still underneath that 26.5K level that we've noted many times. It did spike up to 26.4 this morning on the CPI print news, but was immediately sold off into the U.S. session. So, um, you know, a lot of volatility, good for trading, but um, not the best if you are a bull at the moment. So, Nick, you know, I mean, Mark was talking about how, you know, the S&P sort of like all the major you know, indexes are, are are moving in the in the tradfi markets toward very bullish. Have been bullish, keep going bullish. We keep talking about whether we're going to end the crypto winter, and it seems like we just remain at least in a partial winter. Like I don't know if it's a full on winter, but it's it, from what you're saying, that's what it sounds like. 
Yeah, uh, I was actually just discussing this with uh, several traders who, you know, definitely try to do a little bit about what we do on TTC in terms of research and, and some guys that are strictly on the retail side, you know, dollar cost averaging. And we were discussing, you know, the the regulatory landscape and the lack of, uh, you know, solid or, or safe rails in the US, which is scaring, you know, high net worth investors and the institutional crowd. So let's say you have a billion dollars and you're looking at the US regulatory system and saying, I could buy Bitcoin at 25K, but if the SEC comes in and deems XYZ a security and makes it, you know, makes me jump through hoops to either onboard into crypto or obviously, you know, get off the rails of crypto, if all that's difficult, I'm going to be hit with fees and there's the giant risk of another 10 to 20% drop. What you're going to do with that billion dollars is probably put it into something more safe and sound and get back into the industry when there's a little bit more clarity. So to put it very simply, the lack of clarity right now is decreasing uh, institutional interest. There's plenty of retail floating around, but until those big boys step back in with confidence, we are we are going to continue to suffer. Uh, and unfortunately, unfortunately, we have uh, poser Gary Gensler to thank for this lack of clarity um, and therefore, you know, lack of general interest to take risk in crypto when other markets are performing well. Well, we will talk about it more in the crypto block. Um, this is the Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain Twitter Spaces, Tuesday, Thursday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. We do a weekend edition on Sundays also at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And after each show, we do Beyond B3. It's, a, it's another full-on hour where you, B3 Nation, all you guys listening get to be part of the conversation. Not everybody can talk, but you can, you can participate. You can ask, jump in, join the conversation. It's, it's a lot of fun, so stick around for that. And please follow us at Get Rev Radio. Tweet out the space and follow all of our speakers. It is time to jump in to one of our favorite conversations, which is what will the Fed do next? So Mark's going to get to go first because he is held firm. John, you missed the last you missed the last edition on this. But Mark, you know, Alex, who's not here, has been d d committed to the idea the Fed will raise hikes, will raise interest uh, rates of 25 basis points tomorrow. Um, the market seems to suggest uh, a pause, but there is certainly an indication that they're very open to considering a temporary pause and then a jump, John, not a, a cut in, in, in further months. So let's start with you, Mark, your take, your analysis, and then we'll go from there. Because this is the last chance we get before tomorrow to, just, to put our bets on what's going to happen. It, it, it is mercifully, and, and I'm sure probably some in the B3 Nation audience are thankful. But, you know, then again, we'll get another FOMC meeting coming up in July. Yay. Um, but uh, listen, it, it's it's uh, really just further support for the position that I've had. And, and I'm referring, of course, to data that we looked at from our friends at the CFTC today. So this is maybe Fantastic Futures Part 2 or Part 2, if you're listening in French. Uh, basically indicating that hedge funds um, are levering up their bets, uh, their net short positions in the two-year treasuries for the 11th straight week uh, for the period that ending uh, ended excuse me, on, on Friday. Um, and this is a rather significant uh, move statistically, both in the amount of leverage being applied and the duration of the trade. And what this means for those that don't um, uh, – not necessarily fluent naturally in understanding uh, fixed income trade speak is that these hedge funds are betting that this pause is temporary. This pause we expect to get tomorrow is temporary, that the Fed will continue to hike this year. 
um, and and not uh, that the Fed will start to to cut rates this year. And certainly, I think uh, Alex and his prediction that the Fed may actually hike tomorrow has become almost statistically impossible. But would love to hear uh, John's thoughts on this data that we looked at today from the CFTC showing this massive short trade on the two-year. Yeah, well, Mark, um, I, I thought that the, uh, the the mold was already made and that we were likely to see a pause, just as you said, um, and that I still believe that uh, if we see the s- slowdown coming, that we still might see, for you know, pushing out not from uh, July or August, but end of September, that's the end of the third quarter. So I'm looking for that fourth quarter uh, potential for a rate cut still. And we will certainly get the rhetoric that I think you're right about tomorrow, that we will get uh, a, a, a hawkish tone of sorts. They will say that we've paused. Don't take that as the idea that we're done. But then it'll be if they truly remain data dependent, uh, we'll see whether or not they decide to keep rolling in more rates, Mark, because I think we're still likely to see by fourth quarter into the fourth quarter in October uh, that first rate cut. But uh, right now, look at where the 10 year is. Um, You know, you got to like the idea that with all the hikes they've thrown at the market, the uh, 10 year bond right now is 383. And that's with all of these hikes uh, thrown at the market. They can't get it. It was over four, significantly over four, but now they can't get it back there. And they're trying pretty hard right here. So what? Oh, go ahead, Mark. Go ahead. I just had a question for John, um, Robin, and maybe it was the question you were going to ask. And it's something that I actually neglected to bring up when I was doing my um, half of the TradFi uh, update on the day and where we've come so far this week. But we've got another number coming out tomorrow before the Fed decision in the afternoon, and that's the PPI. Um, are you seeing anything in in the futures markets, John, that would indicate that the PPI print is going to come in materially differently from an inflation perspective than this morning's CPI? And in a related question, I, I kind of feel like the Fed's decision is is made and baked in and is already on talking points and eight by ten index cards for Jay Powell to read from. So, if we saw something abnormal in the PPI tomorrow morning, would it change the Fed's decision? Yes, is my answer. If we saw something abnormal, which I don't think we'll see, um, I think we're likely to get uh, a similar report that shows a demuting of uh, 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 inflationary pressures just as we did today. Um, But I still will point out that uh, real hourly wages are down 3% since January of 2021. Meanwhile, uh, the food index that they track. And I put both of these out on uh, uh, three at three, as well as my Twitter today, the uh, uh, food index is up 15.6% since January of 21. And again, with real wages down 3%, that's not a good mix. And the Fed paying attention to stuff like that has to be thinking, well, um, we're seeing food prices come in because they have but they're still significantly higher than they were. And is it us and interest rates? Uh, Or what is it that's causing, are there shortages? I don't think so. 
supply and demand still works. So what is the reason that the that people have been able to hike prices for food so significantly? Well, you know, that was actually what I was, I wasn't going to ask what Mark was asking. I was going to ask AJ about the food prices. And I saw that grocery prices went up from April to May, according to the BLS, and that overall grocery prices are, you know, still almost 6% higher than they were. This is looking at May than they were a year ago. Menu prices the same. Food prices combined like 6.7% up what they were a year ago. How does that affect what the, I know it affects people who are spending the money. How does it affect what the Fed does both tomorrow and then in July? Well, um, like I say, they have to decide whether or not uh, moving rates up, how badly will it hurt the consumer? Um, because the consumer, I don't believe it's demand pushing up these food prices here, Rob. Um, I think uh, consumers keep trading down, but even though they're trading down, uh, companies are able to raise prices fairly significantly. 15% since 21 is fairly significant. And I think that's likely to result in the Fed saying, okay, we take a pause, we look at it, we get um, another employment report before we have to do anything else, like Mark said, in July. And we get more data from CPI and PPI that uh, couldn't tell us that things are coming in more dramatically than, uh, you know, just a, a, a tenth of a percent here or a tenth of a percent there. Mark, you got a last word on this? No, I, I think um, I don't expect any surprises from the PPI tomorrow. Um, and I'm, I'm looking very carefully tracking all this data that we watch to see whether or not we could be looking at a July hike, uh, which I think the market will react very poorly to. I think the market will throw a tantrum if we hike in July. And the data and the bets from the hedgies and other large traders seem to indicate that that is in the offing. So, um, you know, the summer tends to be quiet for markets in terms of trading volatility and things happening. Um, this summer could be an exception to that general rule if we see the Fed hiking um, in, in July. Well, let's talk about, let's shift gears, guys. B B3 Nation, thanks for joining us. It's the Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain Twitter Spaces. Um, we do this every Tuesday, every Thursday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time, a Sunday weekend edition, 5.30 Eastern Time. Follow us at Get Rev Radio. Follow all the speakers. Tweet out the space. We love having you listen and stick around for the Beyond B3 show. We do it right after this. It's a full hour where you guys get to join in. Let's uh, talk about, We've talked about this a bunch, and I don't think it's a topic that's going to go away. I mean, the the AI space, whether it's the whether it, you know whether it's the the arms race for AI between the big tech companies, whether it's the chip wars, which are heating up now. You know, we talked about AMD, we talked about you know Nvidia, how Nvidia is doing just great as the pack leader, but AMD comes out with AI GPU. I don't know exactly what that is, but I think. I think Mark does, and I'm guessing it's a pretty advanced um, artificial intelligence chip. Well, uh, yeah, Rob, um, it, it is. Um, it's a it's a processing unit that is designed specifically for artificial intelligence processing. It's not something that um, you or I are going to run and buy, or would even necessarily be made available to us. They're going to run around thirty thousand uh, dollars, although that is based on speculation. AMD did not disclose a price for this new AI-focused GPU. But their H100 unit 
um, offered, well, not their H100 unit, NVIDIA's H100 unit uh, runs around that price. And we expect that this is going to be in that same range. But this is 100% uh, from AMD and the timing, not an accident after all the announcements from NVIDIA last week, a direct shot across their bow in an attempt to dethrone uh, NVIDIA uh, from being the leader in making chips and GPUs and related equipment for the AI uh, space race that you accurately pointed out. NVIDIA, for those that are counting, currently has a whopping 80% of the market share, 80% of the market share. And that's for a market that is expected to be at the end, by the end of this year, a $30 billion TAM or total addressable market growing at about a 50% compound annual rate to about $150 billion, simple math, through 2027. Uh, so there's a lot at stake that AMD, I think, here making a credible uh, attempt at uh, taking a significant, potentially significant portion of that remarkably large 80% market share held by NVIDIA. But John, you know, John knows more about these chip makers than I do, so he may have a different opinion. No, I don't. I think you're exactly right, Mark. And I think, um, like I've said, uh, Palantir and uh, a host of other uh, stocks have huge potential in this space. And as always, uh, we're good. Tesla's reach just continues to grow, and they have the most data, which is the lifeblood of AI. AI doesn't work without data. And so if you're talking about travel, um, if you're talking about a host of things related to automobiles, as you and I know from the telemetry com companies we've worked with, um, Tesla has hands down the most data um, and it's not even close. And then you start throwing as these roll out uh, the charging domination that they will have with supercharging stations for both Ford and GM already announced. Um, this will be huge in terms of, uh, like I say, the data about where people go, how long they spend there, um, where are the best places for uh, people to find fast supercharging stations and all that sort of thing. Um, rather than, you know, some of these charge point and others that take a significantly longer amount of time uh, to charge those EVs. You know, John, Mark mentioned, you know, how big, you know, how expensive this, these, these chips are. And I've asked this before, and, and I'm, I might be off base with it a little, but it would seem to me that there's still a downstream market. We're going to need, for AI, for gaming, if, if we're going to incorporate this stuff into our computers, into our phones, into our games, even into our smart cars, aren't there, isn't there going to be a next generation of super chips that may not be as, as, a, as advanced and big as, as these AIs are, but, but they base that more for a consumer level? And isn't that a new chip market that AMD might be better positioned to capture than NVIDIA? Um, well, again, it's really, I can react only to what they have now. Um, so it's really hard for me to react to what NVIDIA or any other chip maker may have in terms of a super chip that's even better than what they have right now. Clearly, they're the leader right here, Rob. Advanced Micro is nipping at their heels, but it's NVIDIA's race to lose at this point. But there always will be. Um, multiple chip makers, including Micron, 
that are going to be in this fray. And I, I don't think I want to crown uh, anybody more than just over the next six or 12 months. I think somebody else who's not, maybe not even on the radar now could be one of the next big winners. How, right. John, how, how scary would it be if it was Taiwan Semi? Very. Oh, great. Yeah, right. And and Rob, you know, you you ask a great question, and and the, to to give maybe more of a techie answer versus the the excellent market answer that John gave in terms of chips and compute power, the, the chip industry tends to do a very good job of keeping up with and and producing chips that match the rate of compute and and compute speed and power, right? They they, they sort of go uh, hand in hand in terms of how quickly computers can move and how quickly the chip makers are able to keep up with the software and the hardware sort of jazz of that, of that whole industry. So, um, and, and oftentimes the chip makers try to come out with something that is even more uh, from a capability perspective in terms of computing speed uh, than what the uh, current software to support is available to try to make sure that their chips are not obsolete in eight months or a year, which is often the case in the chip industry. And of course, the thing that everybody's got on the long-term horizon for AI is quantum computing, but that's a that's a topic for its own show. So I'm going to tease our audience, but not go there. Yeah, and and last thought on this, and again, I'm just kind of playing out into the Web three future here, Mark. But but it, it certainly is is plausible that Google, who's you know in an existential race to figure out how not to have AI undercut their main you know their main income stream with search engines. Why couldn't Google or Apple try to come out in the next few years with an AI AI phone? You know, it's the it's the smartphone that's the AI phone, which would need a super chip of sorts. Not you know, is that crazy that they would actually try to make a phone that is basically totally AI enabled? Well, you know, so much of AI is is software, right? I mean, Chat GPT, large language models, all of that. It's it's not hardware. It's it's not it's not chips. You need you need both for AI to function. Um, but your phone is currently AI enabled. You can you can run ChatGPT or Baird on on the phone that you have in your hand right now. So it would be more yeah. a question of you know do they integrate AI more into the operating systems? The OS. That's what I meant. Um, yeah, that's what I meant. Like built in, yeah. like into the OS. No, I mean, listen. It's a, it's a great it's a great question, um, and and it's probably a little more complicated than than one that we have time for. And I think that the philosophical question that it raises, which is one I would love to address at some point in time, is at what point you know are we giving over uh, too much control for what goes on to uh, or goes on with our phones and with our personal data that is uh, created and shared on our phones, turning that over to the AI. That's a that's a scary thought. John, last question. Are you bullish on AMD right now based on what they're doing? Yes, sir. And we've had very recent unusual activity in that name, Rob. So, for instance, last week when Mark and I were hosting um, a great cadre of uh, uh, well-heeled and uh, well-educated investors in uh, Vintners Inn in the Napa-Sonoma wine country area, we talked about uh, bullish call buying uh, in, in AMD that was about, I want to say it was 15 bucks higher than where the stock is trading now. And so they were betting on both the 143 strike and the 140 strike pretty aggressively. 
They've been right a lot. So I wouldn't dismiss that as a possibility over the between now and the July timeframe. Awesome, awesome insight, you guys. Let's talk one last TradFi topic. We are bulls, bears, and blockchain. The 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 retail B3 store is Bed Bath and Beyond. Um, they're in the middle of a bankruptcy. What's uh what's going on and what's overstocks playing with their asset bid? What's that all about and what does it look like, Mark? Well, Rob, I think, you know, mercifully for, for me and, and lots of other men in this country who have been dragged through Bed Bath & Beyond, kicking and screaming, uh, sometimes involuntarily, I can't say that I'm terribly sad to see this dinosaur of a retailer go the way of the dinosaur and possibly the buggy whip. Um, and of course, there's been a lot of talk about Bed Bath & Beyond's bankruptcy and what might happen to... Uh, Bye Bye Baby and some of the other components of the business. But um, this is a company that has capitulated to the inevitable uh, result of Amazon, just-in-time purchasing that's available with Amazon Prime, the shift from brick-and-mortar to online. And to people, I guess, finally just realizing that the Bed Bath & Beyond experience, shopper experience in the stores was just flat-out crappy. Uh, But um, interestingly, a, a company that uh, knows a thing or two about a bargain and has made their business uh, out of providing bargains to their consumers, Overstock.com, a company that we know very well. Actually, John and I have gotten to know the founder of that company, the controversial Patrick Byrne, pretty well. John, if I remember correctly, you did a fireside with Patrick in January at one of our events. Yeah, absolutely. At the Battlefin event in Miami. And uh, uh we're glad to see him recovering from uh, yet another hospital stay, but um, his stock OSTK, where he's no longer the chairman, but the founder, um, still seeing lots of activity. I'm not saying unusual activity, but lots of it. I would imagine, um, like you said, Mark, um, Wayfair and Overstock compete more with the likes of uh, even a, uh, a restoration hardware, which is obviously several steps above in terms of price point over Overstock and Wayfair. But nonetheless, if you were looking for that couch that looks like the $14,000 couch that you'd see at RH, restoration hardware, I think a lot of people probably do step down and take a look at uh, both of those two retailers, OSTK and symbol W for Wayfair. Then what, so what's the, oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, you can. Ask, I think we're going to ask the same question. Good, Rob. No, I, maybe not. I was actually going to ask back to you, Mark, on this. The idea that you know, if Overstock's known mostly, you know, John for the furniture. I mean, they do bedding and stuff. But is the is the play here that they can benefit from Bed Bath and Beyond's brand and their, you know, they kill the retail stores, the, the brick and mortar, be able to expand what they're known for, so they become the Bed Bath and Beyond online, basically the a, a version of that. Is that why they want to buy it? Is that what they're after? You know, I'm really at a loss to figure out what they're after here. This, 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 you know, the footprint of the stores would be normal. What somebody would say in response to that question, Rob, more than anything else, the footprint. But um, in an environment where we know these leases are going to be renegotiated because of the mass of uh, uh, 
refinancing that needs to happen in commercial real estate, nobody needs to take over somebody else's footprint right now. They'd rather start fresh and negotiate a much better lease than uh, someplace like Bed Bath and Beyond probably has. So I'm 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 somewhat at a loss for this one, Rob. Trying to figure out why uh, they would acquire this. Well, you know, John, the deal and the, the bid from Overstock for twenty one and a half billion dollars explicitly does not include any of the uh, brick and mortar uh, footprint retail operations for a lot of reasons, including the ones that you just accurately pointed out. So, but I think you may be onto something here and, and where I was trying to figure out what the motivation would be, is it to get into, because they are buying the intellectual property, which includes those brand names, as I understand the bid. And maybe it is to take that virtual footprint, that virtual af uh, af affinity, if you will, that when you think Ben Bath and Beyond, you think soft goods, you think sheets and towels and scented soaps and potpourri and all the things that guys like me just love shopping for. Tongue in cheek. Um, so that could be it, right? Um, it's and it's look these guys, as I said, they're known for uh, knowing a good deal when they see one. That's the that's been the business of Overstock.com since its inception. So you're going to be very, very interested to see how this one plays out. Wouldn't, wouldn't it though? If they're buying in, if they buy this out, it's basically there, so they can take all the branding. So my thought, Mark, was when you said, like millions of men, I hate being dragged into Bed Bath and Beyond. You no longer have to be dragged anywhere. Your wife or girlfriend can shop Bed Bath and Beyond at Overstock. Like good riddance. Yeah, that's everybody's right. Everybody's happy from the comfort of their iPhone. Yes, preferably in another room. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But Overstock gets the branding that because every every woman like is like I'm not being sexist here, but you know, moms, guys too. I go to Bed Bath and Beyond, but it's like you know, it's sort of the top brand in that space for years. Do you go voluntarily though, Rob? Because I, I, I have when I had yes, as a single guy when I had to buy my sheets in the old days, I would go to Bed Bath and Beyond. Yeah, you know. You heard it here first, folks. Rob has sheets. <laughs> it's the Bulls, Bears, and blockchain. Um. B3 Nation, it's the Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain Twitter Spaces, Tuesday, Thursday, 5.30 Eastern Time, a weekend edition on Sundays. Follow us at Get Rev Radio. Tweet out the space. Follow all our hosts, if you will. We love your interactivity. Stick around. In, in 20 minutes, we're going to have the Beyond B3 show where you guys can participate. But as always, you know, without you guys, we wouldn't be a show. We'd just be talking to ourselves, which we're happy to do, but we're much more fun when we can share it with all of you. Um, Nick Mancini, let's jump into some crypto um, t topics. Now, you know, sadly, like the Fed and the, the never-ending tale of the Fed, we seem to have a never-ending tale of Gary Gensler. And Nick, before I let you jump in, I always have to ask John the perennial question, just on the chance that he has somehow had a come-to-Jesus moment and changed his mind. Is Gary Gensler a poser, John? No. Gary Gensler is still a poser. <laughs> He is, in fact, uh, several Republicans are now trying to both expand the SEC uh, with one more commissioner and remove Chair Gensler because of the horrific damage that he has um, basically been as responsible for as anything with the damage in crypto, the damage in some of the... Uh, uh, naked short selling that continues to go on. They finally got some joker charged. I think it was down in Florida with naked short selling. It was an investment advisor. But 
the SEC has been so lame about this stuff, Rob. And as Mark has said, uh, basically their enforcement division has been doing all the heavy lifting because he will not tell people what the guardrails are. And even when compelled by courts, he has yet to do it. So I hope they're successful. I hope they remove him. This guy is a joke and he's a blot on the industry. I've got a new name for the SEC. It's not the Securities and Exchange Commission. It's the Securities and Enforcement Commission, because that seems to be what their their main rail is these days. Well, Nick, well, Rob, go before, ahead. You, go, before you switch to Nick, like that's really a prophetic statement, and you may or may not have realized it, but something I always try to remind people when we get on this topic is that, and not everybody knows this, and that's fine, right? It, it's... People have lives as compared to, you know, those of us that live and breathe and have dedicated our lives to understanding financial markets, which is probably a sad statement and we should get a dog or a hobby or something. But the SEC has it's a dual role agency. It has two purposes. One is to enforce, yes, it is to enforce, but the other is to regulate and help in the creation of the rules that it enforces. You can't have one without the other. You can't enforce the rules. If, if you all sit down, everybody I'm sure that's on B3 right now has played Monopoly. You can't sit down and play Monopoly with someone that's making up the rules as they go. Or say, well, you, you, the rules are implied, or you know, the first uh, version of the Monopoly rules that came out in 1933 are the ones that we should be following right now and figure out how they apply to the transactions that you're you're conducting in the game today in, in 2023. That That's what's happening here. But the SEC has a dual mandate. It's supposed to regulate as well as enforce. Yeah, you know, I just realized I'm a terrible Monopoly player because I'm always trying to change the rules, especially when I play with my family, my younger nephews. They're like, you made up new rules. I mean, it's all relative. But but great point, Mark. Great point, yes. And and they're only doing one part of it. So, Nick, to bring you into the conversation, we saw Binance's reaction to the SEC. Was it was it yesterday? Um, kind of their response. Your thoughts? Yeah, there's been a uh, there's been a lot of responses to the SEC over the past couple of days. So I'll do my best to kind of break down uh, exactly what's going on across everything, including Binance and uh, and this Ripple case as well. So Binance, of course, you know, made their response yesterday as we all expected them. You know, the it's not going to be a one sided legal battle, uh, or else the SEC would have. Um, you know, they wouldn't need the courts. So uh, basically, Binance is saying that, you know, they have an excuse for everything going on. They accuse the SEC of not understanding um, exchange infrastructure based on how they have forced everyone into kind of pigeonhole rules uh, due to the lack of clarity around, uh, you know, digital asset trading. So it was basically Binance, you know, calling out the SEC saying, nothing you're saying makes sense. You're getting everything confused. We have to do business in this fashion because of what you've forced upon the industry as a whole, um, which is, you know, again, what we expected Binance to say. So now the courts will will deal with it and we'll get our uh, news every now and again in relation to that civil suit. And again, th there is also rumors of a criminal suit, uh, you know, being formed as well, though we that is unsubstantiated and we have no proof around that. It is something to kind of be aware of in the back of your mind, though. Uh, as it pertains to the Ripple case, the Hinman docs were released today, which was not as big of a bombshell as the industry had hoped, uh, but certainly gave us some interesting indications. So uh, one of the documents that I think uh, the, the lawyer for the uh, chief 
uh, legal officer for Coinbase uh, tweeted out is basically uh, Hinman admitting in you know internal chat logs that there is a quote unquote regulatory gap that exists in this space, the space being the financial sector and SEC regulation, and basically saying that while a a a, a coin that gets launched could be a security on day one, if it becomes sufficiently decentralized, and of course a lot of nuance around that conversation as well, but if it becomes um, uh, sufficiently decentralized, then it could cease to be a security. And there was a couple other things thrown in there around, you know, um, Ethereum. Uh, he Hinman admitted that Ethereum was not a security, but this was back in 2019 when it was proof of work. Now it is proof of stake. And he did use language as we see it right now, meaning back in 2019. So there's uh, a lot of things going on and, and, you know, very much agree with John and, and the news that came out yesterday of a congressman, uh, you know, wanting to to get rid of the chairman role that uh, Gary Gensler has currently and make a board, uh, a, a, uh, a bipartisan board, three Republicans, three Democrats, in which they make decisions together and then direct an executive director to then go forth with those decisions that the bipartisan board made together. So a lot of interesting things going around around the SEC, and I don't think a single bit of it makes Gary Gensler look good because when you look at the Ripple case, a lot of sparring internally as to what what to do in regard to digital asset industry. The Binance case, they are going to fight that in full force. Coinbase is stepping in and, and making all of their ads and, and rhetoric around Gary Gensler's missteps and lack of clarity and you know basically telling everybody to to quote unquote f off and and you know don't you know we're not going to give you any rules on xyz so um nothing to exactly make sense of right now but i think you know where we were think about it a month ago everyone was like gary gunster is going to railroad this stuff and all the democrats are behind it and you know we are going to get screwed and now a month later everybody is fighting tooth and nail against this, you know, uh, in a regulation by enforcement. And uh, I think the cards are are looking a little bit more hopeful, although, you know, there is no clarity. There is no light at the end of the road yet. So, you know, when looking at, you know, all you got to tell me is, is all I got to say is Algorand and, and, and potentially Gary Gensler, his, his, his braves were Algorand in the past and, pot- and potentially, if it's true, wanting to work for Binance says it all about Gary Gensler. But and, and Rob, there was a recent yeah. video that came out with Gary Gensler saying verbatim, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecash, and Bitcoin Cash, these are not securities. He said that verbatim on video. It's on my Twitter if you want to look at it. Well, and obviously he's he's on the fence in Ethereum. I think it will remain true with Bitcoin. John and Mark, let me bring you guys into the conversation. We're talking about regulation here. I think everybody agrees. Some B3 Nation, you know, if you've been listening to us, we go over this, what, what will actually change this. It fascinates me that so much of the SEC is in the news these days, primarily around crypto. I mean, you, I know the SEC is busy doing other things, but all the national, even the mainstream national financial news, it's the SEC about crypto. It's almost like we should have a crypto exchange commission and a securities and exchange commission. Is it odd to you guys? That is the main thing that the SEC is getting attention for is what it's doing in the crypto space. Well, they decided, Rob, that they wanted to, they being the uh, the commission, the Securities and Exchange Commission, decided that this would be their ballywick. And uh, quickly, the CFTC years ago decided that everything but Bitcoin would be their 
Ballywick, and they decided basically that if you're if you've got futures, which of course the CME listed as well as futures options on Bitcoin and Ethereum, um, those would obviously fall under CFTC purview. But when you apply for an ETF, exchange traded fund, or an exchange traded note (ETN) or anything like that, um, those were blocked by the SEC, um, not wanting to have those. Uh, be able to be traded and owned in a stock account. So uh, it is extremely uh, confusing as well as uh, I'm sure frustrating for Brian Armstrong over at Coinbase, who is basically leaving the country with his firm as much as possible. The Winklevoss twins, which left the country with their derivatives exchange uh, setting up offshore. And there just will be more and more of this. And we don't need to belabor that. But it is a sad thing that so much of these uh, jobs that would have otherwise been here will instead be, you know, in the either ether or in other countries like the UK, where they're embracing it more, and Switzerland, which is more or less, uh, along with Malta and Dubai, some of the biggest areas where people are setting up shop. Does that affect them? I mean, do you guys see that in the trad markets? Obviously, it's affecting people's decisions in the crypto space. When you're looking at the tech stuff you're talking about, John, is there a hesitancy to put money into certain stocks or, or small cap stocks or certain companies because you're not sure what's going to happen around this? If they're, if they're blockchain related or if they're Web3 related, you know, as a technology separate from crypto? I think that's already happened. Um, so I don't think that's a new thing or that it's, uh, that people are as concerned with it now. Um, but uh, you do have, you know, very significant multi-billion dollar companies like MicroStrategy that are, you know, publicly traded, um, SEC regulated, and have significant investments, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars invested in Bitcoin in particular and other uh, uh, cryptos. So I, I think this is something, Rob, that uh, is is a real problem, but hopefully one that can be overcome in a future administration, whichever administration that might be. Whichever it is. Yeah. Look, we got uh, Grant Cardone with us. Grant, you're jumping in. It's, it's, we're nearing the end of our show. Good to have you. Welcome in again. Just can't stay away from people. Everybody likes B3 Spaces. Good to have you, Grant. I don't know how much of the combo you've heard we've been talking about the SEC and its session with yeah. regulating. Look, I just came in to be around smart people. So the fact that the room's ending right now just shows you my arrival has, has dropped the IQ of the room. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> That's not true. Not at all, Grant. That... Grant. Your thoughts, your thoughts on, on, on the SEC and look in the crypto space. And even that, you know, I mean, look, there is a tie into real estate that I think blockchain has a big part of. And if, if innovative technologies are moving, it, it's going to affect sectors beyond the crypto space. It will affect broad sectors of the U.S. economy and, and beyond just tech. Yeah, I just feel like there's a lot of things that feel like there's pressure being put on sectors uh, with some, some other play in mind. So guys my size are, are going to get squeezed in the process because... I, I don't understand why the Fed keeps raising interest rates. I don't understand how 
you know, I just, it's hard to make sense of a lot of this stuff. I don't know why the stock market is where it is right now. Like my, every, most of my predictions would all be wrong. So I have to do everything long-term because I can't figure out why anything's happening in real time as it is. And isn't that the uncertainty though, Grant and, and John and Mark weighing on that too, but Grant, it is the uncertainty for people that be, it becomes so disruptive, whether it's the SEC regulating by enforcement whether it's a lack of clarity in general, whether the, the, what the Fed is doing, it creates an uncertainty that trickles down. And that's what worries me. It trickles down way past institutional investors. It trickles down to average people and how, how they run their businesses and what they're looking at. And that uncertainty is really disruptive. Well, Rob, to, to, to bring it in um, to the real estate focus, uh, because Grant is you know one of the best speakers that we have the pleasure of coming on to our show to offer his insights, um, it, it's it's definitely problematic. Using blockchain, fractionalization of real estate interests using blockchain and using digital assets was one of the areas that uh, most everybody that's been involved in crypto, blockchain, and digital assets has said that is one of the most obvious and clear applications of this technology, n- number one, right? The transfer of title on blockchain, fractionalization of real estate holdings, both individual parcels and portfolios of properties, being able to use a blockchain and digital assets to strip out and sell, uh, you know, maybe the income uh, portion of those properties while enabling the uh, traditional holders uh, of those properties to remain in their position. A lot of things that would expand the ability to own real estate as an asset class to a much broader swath of, of the American population. All of this is being stifled as a result of what's going on right now from a regulatory perspective. I mean, Grant, what what what's your what's your view on that? I mean, do you do you agree that the this regulatory environment is just putting a a, a, a bucket of ice water on the development of all of those promising companies, many of which you know we've looked at, and in some instances we actually have an interest in, in full disclosure, that I think we're going to expand the opportunity to invest in real estate to folks that traditionally could not afford to allocate to that asset class? Well, I, I can just speak to how difficult it is for me in my effort to democratize institutional quality assets and make them available to all investors. It has been, so, it is so expensive and so prohibitive, uh, both in time and resources. And then the overwatch, which I understand, man, people should be protected by the SEC, right? But it is so restrictive. I don't know how people are going to actually do this. Then you take it and lay on the, the blockchain piece. I, I've i yet to meet one person that's able to, to deliver a product where I can say, I can drop this on the blockchain. It can fractionalize the real estate and I'm not going to go to jail. Nobody, nobody, nobody can give me that assurance that, that it's not a security. I can't trade it. Like I just, I know how hard it is just to, just to, trade the asset uh, with with shares of uh, non-accredited and accredited investors. And when hey, you- but Grant, Grant, if you were to talk to the V3 audience based on what Mark was just saying, but but as a guy who is big in real estate, if if that uncertainty wasn't there, the potential that Mark is talking about from smart contacts to, fra- to contracts to fractionalizing ownership, it truly could democratize real estate, right? One hundred percent, it could, and 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 great quality real estate. So now, now it could be that this disruption in commercial right now, 
because it, the, the, the problem in commercial real estate is going to be massive. And right behind that's going to be multifamily. And it's going to be big. And, and the debt markets are not going to lend to it right now. They're not going to be, be able to readjust all these loans. And it would be a major solution to some forward-thinking politician to come in and, and, and free up some of this regulation and make it possible for people to, to, to get it done. I'm just saying even doing it the old traditional way is so expensive and so prohibitive. And you know what's interesting, Grant? You know what's interesting? And I'm, I'm not going to shout out any of the platforms, but there are several platforms that we have seen that actually even had some institutional adoption associated with them that could have checked all of the boxes except for the last one that I'm not going to go to jail and it's not going to be a security, right? So you've done a, a great job of, of really sort of highlighting what the problem is here is without appropriate regulation, which is what everybody's asking for. We understand the SEC has an enforcement role, but that dual mandate that I spoke to earlier, the SEC is also supposed to be providing clear rules of the game so people understand what to do. This is another area where innovation is being stifled, and it is not to the benefit of the American investor. Yeah, and I think, you know, also, you know, Grant, to, to your point about the commercial real estate market, we've all talked about how that is a looming crisis that could, in fact, create a, a you know, if not a, a regional banking crisis, certainly a massive consolidation of the banking of banks, which wouldn't be good. And yet you're you're putting out here the idea that the blockchain technology and what we're talking about could actually help solve that problem. Yeah, I, I want to just emphasize that point. You're saying it could actually yeah, fix yeah. it. Well, well, yeah, yeah. Look, in the last nine months, Brookfield has walked away from one trillion dollars worth of debt, and uh, BlackRock wrote off a, a, a trillion seven. And it, it, people act like it's a non-event. Now, if I can't do that. But those guys will be back. They'll be back doing deals tomorrow. So it's really unfair playing field. I mean, if anybody wants to talk about fairness, like uh, I watched this guy, Nate Paul, just get, get eight, four or five federal indictments against him. He's going to go to jail for probably 40 years. Like, you, you don't have somebody. I said, why would somebody do that? And they said, greed. I said, that ain't greed, dude. You, there, there's no greed in jail. You you end up with nothing. So the the they protect against a handful of crazies. But at the end of the day, the big groups, the Brookfields of the world, okay, and bigger names than that, just walk away from their debt, get a pat on the back, and they're back in business tomorrow uh, doing business. But so, you can't do that. And, the, and smaller investors, smaller than you, can't do that as well, right? That's the point. It's a, it's a, it's a double standard, right? There. Totally, totally. Dude, I, I, I would never be able to raise funds again if I, if I walked away from that much debt. Yeah, it's fascinating. You guys, this has been a great conversation. It's Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain Twitter Spaces, Tuesday, Thursday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time, Sunday, Weekend Edition, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time at Get Rev Radio. Follow us. Follow everyone, including Grant Cardone, who just joined in at the end. It is time for us to move it on to our B3, Beyond B3 after show. Um, Mark Lepresti, John Nigerian, Nick Mancini from Trade the Chain. Thanks for filling in for Alex, who noticeably was absent on the day when he would have to defend his Fed, his Fed position. Just kidding. He'll he'll be back on Thursday. And Grant Cardone, thanks for joining us. 
Thanks for joining Rob Nelson, Alex Massioli, Mark Lapresti, and John Nigerian with another great episode of Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain twice a week on Revolution Radio. Whether you're new to the world of Web3 finance or an experienced investor, we've got you covered. Follow us on Twitter at GetRevRadio and visit our website at revolutionradio.io, helping you make smarter financial decisions. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.